Hi there, Siege fans. This is that week off that I told you about, where I drove out to see my daughter and our newest grandson. It was two days of driving to get there, and then two days back. Lots of time in the car. Ten-hour days, typically. So, lots of time to listen to an audiobook about an EMP and muse about things. I thought I'd take you along. We packed with a sort of prepper mindset. In addition to the suitcases of clothes for a week plus, I made sure to pack a shovel and a scraper. Rental cars seldom come with a scraper. A paper map atlas, both of our car bags with emergency supplies, as well as boots and gloves and coats, etc., should we have to walk any distance in winter. Well, you just never know, right? I picked up the rental car the night before so we could pack it that night and leave before dawn. Get a jump on those 10-hour days of driving. Whenever I've rented a car over the past several years, I got to sample what automotive technology has been up to. I usually drive older cars that I can afford. The few cars that I've bought new over the years have been pretty bare bones. If I could get roll-up windows and manual locks, for instance, I'd go with that. One time I was trying to get a car without a radio because I really didn't care, but it turned out it would cost me more to not have a radio than to just keep it. Nowadays, everything is powered, and there's no manual crank window options anymore. With rental cars, I get to see what the wealthier folks drive. Like most of the cars I'd rented, this one had power everything, and all manner of bells and whistles. One of those whistles that I really don't like is the Lane Assist system. None of the vehicles I've ever owned has had that feature, and if I have anything to say in the matter, they won't. If you haven't driven a car with lane assist, the car tries to prevent you from changing lanes or crossing over the lines. I can see where that might be good if you had a habit of falling asleep at the wheel, but I don't. Some of the cars that I'd rented for business trips had a mild version of lane assist. They would beep at me if I got too close to the line, but that was about it. One Nissan that I'd rented was outright aggressive about it. I remember one time I was trying to drift to the left side of my lane to give a bit more space to a disabled vehicle on the shoulder. The Nissan thought I got too close to the line and that I was clearly incapacitated. It took over the steering to move the car back into the center of the lane. I was actually fighting the steering wheel to keep the car left of center. That really rankled me. I don't want a car with two drivers. It took me quite a while to find out how to turn off that helpful feature. The off switch was pretty well hidden. Nissan really didn't want me to turn it off. The Toyota I rented for this trip had lane assist turned on too, probably as a default for rental cars. While it wasn't as pushy as the Nissan had been, I didn't want to spend four 10-hour days driving a car that wanted to drive itself too. Happily, the off switch wasn't as hidden in the Toyota. The Toyota also had radar-assisted cruise control, which was kind of a mixed blessing. On long drives, I like cruise control, of course, but this one was a bit too deferential. It would use the radar to sense the vehicle ahead and try to maintain a safe distance as it matched the vehicle's speed. If the car ahead slowed down to 30, 
the Toyota would dutifully match it and plod along at the same speed. Again, now that's nice if you're not paying attention. It's less handy if you're trying to make good time. Do modern drivers really pay that little attention to what they're doing? As cars do more and more of the driving, are younger drivers then learning to drive less and let their cars do it for them? For the past few years, writing my own stories, narrating them for you all, and then the home chores, it really didn't leave much time to read or listen to anyone else's stories. This trip was an excellent opportunity to do just that. Since this trip was going to be long hours behind the wheel, doing my own steering, thank you very much, I brought along a couple of audiobooks that I downloaded from Audible back when I had a membership. I had no idea if they were any good, but the price was right. Yeah, I already paid for them. <clears throat> the novel was The Trackers, Book One, by Nicholas Sansbury Smith. This is Audible. Blackstone Audio presents Trackers by Nicholas Sansbury Smith. This book is read by Bronson Pinchot. Many people have a hand in the creation of I had no idea if it was any good or not. But the blurb said he was a New York Times best-selling author. I had some 40 captive hours to find out. I'm not endorsing or recommending Smith's book, by the way. I just had it as a free download and lots of time on my hands. Smith's story starts out as an EMP tale. The North Koreans detonate several high-altitude nukes to paralyze America. The main characters are stranded in Colorado when their vehicles all die and they have to walk home. That's the usual presumption in an EMP novel, that all the cars and trucks everywhere just stop totally dead right where they are. Except for the main character, of course, who usually happens to drive a pre-1990 something or other, so he has the rare functional vehicle. Of course, driving this new Toyota with all its super helpful gizmos makes the trope feel fairly plausible. Since this car has electronic braking, electronic throttle, and that rebellious electronic steering, it's not too hard to imagine that crippling even just a few of these super-helpful features could render the car undrivable. It might decide to steer into a ditch or slam on the brakes or something. I'll have very little say in the matter. I recently read a news story about a guy whose electric car, they didn't say which brand, was rendered inoperative because its computer got stuck doing a software update. The man couldn't, like a computer, simply reboot it. Oh no, he had to pay a couple of thousand dollars to have it towed to an authorized dealer who then spent two days clearing the stuck computer. The more EVs people drive, the more effective those North Korean EMPs are going to be. Driving through Ohio on I-80, and listening to an EMP novel, I got to playing mental games. If the car were to die right here, or maybe right there, what would I do? The interstate highway system was designed to intentionally avoid towns, so you're almost always driving through vast stretches of not much. Truck stops and rest areas tend to be 30 miles or more apart. Getting stranded between two such rest stops could mean a five or six hour walk, 
if you guessed correctly and walked toward the closer one. Ah, but which way is that? I tried to keep mental note of what exits or truck stops I'd recently passed with my paper maps. I could figure out which way to walk back. But I gotta confess, it was tough to keep that up. Many times, I had to admit that I really didn't know exactly where I was. Going all mindless on the interstate is just so easy. But then, too, looking around the gently rolling Ohio landscape, I got to wondering why stranded motorists would hike 10 or 15 more miles to a truck stop when there were farmhouses not even a quarter mile away from the highway. The clusters of farmhouses and buildings were fairly close together, maybe a quarter mile, half mile maybe between them. That got me to wondering if there was a prepper novel plot in there somewhere. An EMP stalls cars on the interstate, and took down the grid, of course, and crowds of stranded motorists descend on farmhouses for shelter. It could be something like those disaster films of the 1970s, where a random bunch of strangers get stranded together and they all have to deal with the various quirks of humanity. The whiny, spoiled rich person, the shifty criminal type, the naive, clueless rube, and, of course, the stalwart hero type, and the inevitable love interest. But then, having watched all of those 70s disasters flicks, like The Towering Inferno and The Poseidon Adventure, etc., etc., the motley mix of strangers tended to get kind of stereotypical. The rich person was so annoyingly whiny, you didn't mind when they got killed. The hero was so flawless and hunky, the love interest was just too good to be true. Well, but you know how Hollywood goes. Perhaps a stranded-by-the-EMP story with a more subtle mix of strangers. What do you think? Of course, as the author, I'd have to come up with some reason why there was an EMP. There, things tend to get a bit more limited. To be a truly stranding event, it would have to be nationwide, or larger. Otherwise, help would be coming from outside the afflicted area, so everyone would just have to hunker down and wait for a week or a month. Not much drama or suspense in that. In the siege story, I had a terrorist's computer virus turn out to be far more successful than even the terrorists expected, taking down grids all over the world. That way, no help would be coming within a week or a month. But of course, I also didn't let the characters know that. In Smith's story, the characters knew that it was a North Korean EMP attack within the day of the event. Since one of the characters was a downed fighter pilot who had been scrambled to intercept one of the North Korean bombers, unsuccessfully, I might add, and there was a well-connected senator character who was being briefed on the situation in Washington. So the readers knew exactly what happened and how it meant that there was no relief help coming anytime soon. But average folks like you and me, lacking a downed fighter pilot or a senator, won't know any of that big-picture stuff. Oh, sure, people would guess, but very little would be definitive. I tried to portray that in my siege story. People didn't know just why the grid went down, but at a certain level, it really didn't matter. You still had to get on with it. The grid was still down, and you still had to get on with life. Where the lack of definitive knowledge would come into play is that it would give some people a reason to hang on to their normalcy bias. No news could be spun into, well, good news, at least for a while.
Coming up on Chicago from the south via I-90 was quite a dreary image. Dark industrial structures looked greasy in the light rain. A forest of truss towers holding up a canopy of high voltage lines. A sprawl of old and densely packed suburbs. The skyline of downtown Chicago loomed over it all like gray paper cutouts. Traffic near the city slowed to a crawl though thankfully never stopped. That was especially nice while in those concrete canyons. Continuing with my mental game of what if, I had to think that getting stranded by an EMP in the canyons of I-90 in Chicago would be a hundred times worse than out in the wilderness of the countryside. The landscape of southern Wisconsin was less open than that of Ohio. Either side of the interstate was more apt to be forest or swamp, or both at the same time, than it would be farmland. Farmhouses were fewer and farther between, even though the farms seemed smaller. If we were stranded out here, walking to the nearest exit would probably be the best bet. My paper maps wouldn't show where the farmhouses were, but I could tell if there was a small town nearby, within walking distance, that is if I had been paying attention to the exits. The landscape of southern Minnesota was quite a bit different yet again. It was a lot flatter and much more like reclaimed prairie than the hilly eastern woodlands of Ohio and Wisconsin. In the flatlands, when you got up on a small rise, you could see for two or three miles easy. This was a land of huge farms, with individual crop fields being 40, 80, or 120 acres each. The farms were farther between, sometimes a mile apart or more. It would be more of a walk across plowed under corn stubble to get to the nearest farm, if an EMP zapped our car out here. The huge farms got me to thinking about food production. Oh sure, there's a lot of land out here for growing food, but with fields this big, it could only be done with diesel-powered equipment. If we did suffer some sort of catastrophic outage, would all these mega farms get enough diesel fuel to power their tractors? A team of horses, even several teams of horses, aren't going to plow, disc, and plant all these thousands of acres. In theory, the Strategic Oil Reserve might provide some of that, but it's at its historic lows since the current administration opted to tap the reserve in order to bring down gas prices a few cents before the last presidential election. Even if the government buys enough oil to fill up the reserve again, how long would it last if it was supplying the military and all of these big farms? Without the big farms and industrial farming, Food would get either scarce or expensive, or likely both. I was listening to a podcast that was talking about how our modern capitalist system has made goods, like food, significantly cheaper than it used to be. The podcaster cited an article on a blog called humanprogress.org. I'll put a link to that article in the show notes. The article compared the cost of food in 1919 versus 2019 
using a metric of how many hours an unskilled laborer had to work to buy the same goods. It's an interesting approach to the value of goods. Rather than focusing on the price and having to factor in inflation and etc., they calculated how long a worker would have to work to buy a pound of beef, for instance, in 1919 and then again in 2019. An hour of a person's labor seems like kind of a constant. The government can inflate the money supply by printing more, but no one can make more hours in a day. Anyhow, the study looked at a basket of 42 items and calculated their cost in 1919, and an unskilled worker's hourly wage, also in 1919, to figure out how many hours that worker had to work to buy those items. That basket of 42 items in 1919 would have cost $11.72 in their dollars. The unskilled worker in 1919 would have had to have worked almost 47 hours to buy that basket of items. Those same items in 2019 would have cost $132. Price inflation, yes, but wage inflation grew even more. That unskilled laborer in 2019 would only have to work 10 and a half hours to buy the same basket of 42 items. The author's point is that our modern industrialized capitalist system has made food cheaper for even the lowest skill level of worker. I was intrigued by the tables in the article, detailing out the 42 items and their costs in hours. Once at the motel, I took those tables and created what might be a theoretical week's worth of groceries for a family of four. I reduced the amount of meat, choosing the cheaper meals or cheaper meats, no sirloin for instance, and increased the amount of staples like rice and beans, flour and bread. I'll put a link to my theoretical week's groceries in the show notes too. You can look at it and you can see where you might tweak it a little bit, but you can also, because you got the numbers, you can figure it out yourself. I came up with it taking an unskilled worker about 40 hours to earn a week's worth of groceries for his family of four. It was really hand-to-mouth living. Of course, in poor families, the father worked longer hours than just 40. The mother made jams or pickles to sell, or took in sewing or did cleaning to earn a little extra. Even the older children pitched in to earn a little for the family. By their combined efforts, they could buy enough food to eat and keep a roof over their heads. The average poor family had no such thing as disposable income. That article got me to thinking about how many hours we might have to work to provide our own food, should things turn out like in my siege stories. In that article, the unskilled worker in 1919 was still benefiting from early industrialized farming. He wasn't growing the potatoes and onions or raising the cow, he was just buying the beef. Even that 1919 worker, who was probably a construction laborer or a di even a ditch digger, wasn't growing the food that he worked for, it was coming from some farmers. As you can see from all the hours he had to work to buy that food, it was pretty precious. Poorer folks didn't throw food away. They'd work too long and hard to get it. Old cookbooks, like from the Depression era, are full of ways to use old stale bread, or use cheaper ingredients like old bread or leftover potatoes to stretch a small amount of meat into a meal. 
think, meatloaf. If they had leftover bits of beef, or maybe not enough for a whole family meal, they made cream chip beef on toast. If there was something that was too far gone, and it would have been pretty rare if something had hung around long enough to go bad, they would usually feed it to a couple of chickens that they were keeping, or it went into a compost pile to support their garden. Nothing went to waste. It was too valuable. Contrast that with today. Food is so plentiful and cheap that we tend to take it for granted. There are articles out there on the internet about how much food people waste. And it's a lot. One article I read said it was something like a pound per person per day on average. That's a lot too. Some of that waste has gotten worse after companies started printing expiration dates on their packaging. Those are quite often best buy dates that refer to peak flavor, not whether it's unsafe to eat. But a whole lot of people treat those dates as if they mean the food is toxic after that date, so they throw it out. One woman I knew used to throw out food that came within a month or two of those printed dates just to be safe. But throwing out perfectly good food just because it's close to its best buy date isn't just a home pantry problem. Corporations do it too, but on a much larger scale. I don't know if I'd mentioned before on this podcast that a member of our church is the night manager of a major franchise grocery store. She saw the huge amount of food that the store would throw away every night. She felt awful about the waste, so she got permission to rescue it. She started bringing the store's cast-offs to the church. There were lots of old bread products and blemished produce, which is kind of understandable. Why would you buy a bruised apple when there's an unbruised one right there in the bin? More shocking was the meat. The store throws away dozens of pounds of chicken every week. Salmon, too. Beef is pretty rare, but a couple of times she's brought in packaged hamburger and even roasts. The past few months, they've been throwing away dozens of eggs. The church runs a food pantry and has quite a few regulars who come in to shop the produce and bread. Church members also shop the cast-offs to help stretch their grocery budget. What isn't taken is sometimes freeze-dried, thanks again Frank, and packaged for long-term storage. What food is too far gone, and there are those too, gets fed to the pastor's pigs, who later become hams and roasts and bacon. Very little goes to waste. Since our food is so cheap and abundant, we tend to not appreciate it like poorer folks did. That, of course, would change if we had to work all week just to eat. It tends to change when you garden and wait all summer to get only three pumpkins from all those vines. You sure as heck aren't going to throw away one of those pumpkins because it looks a little lopsided or had a scar on one side. You waited all summer for that. You trim off the bad spot and eat the rest. You've probably heard tales of the $20 tomato or the $50 hamburger if you were to try to produce it yourself. Now, in most of those tales, they also count startup costs like buying the garden equipment or having to build a small barn, etc. as part of those costs. That's a bit disingenuous since you'd darn well grow more than just one tomato or raise more than just that one cow. Still, such tales, even if exaggerated, 
speak to the amount of time it would take us to grow our own food. I'd venture to guess that it would take us a lot more than 40 hours to produce a week's worth of food for our families. Have you ever thought about what you would do for food if our industrial farming system failed? The failure could be from some extended oil crisis, natural or caused by a government. The failure could be a disruption caused by a war overseas. Maybe it would come from hackers taking down the grid and the banking system. It doesn't need to be as dramatic as a comet hitting the earth to mess things up. Whatever the cause, if food became scarce and expensive, maybe too expensive, what could you grow by yourself? Maybe you already do that. How much of your week gets devoted to growing your food? I had hours and hours behind the wheel to muse over such things. we got to my daughter's place, we got to hold our new grandson, who was not much more than a week old. Oh, man, I had forgotten just how small a newborn is. I wanted to record some cute cooing sounds, but at his young age, he was either asleep and quiet or unhappy, like when he wasn't getting fed quickly enough or when he had to have his jammies off for a diaper change. He really didn't like the cold air. But other than that, he slept most of the time. He was the most content if someone was holding him. So I couldn't get any happy baby cooing or babbling. That will come in a month or two, but not for this trip. The best I could do for happy baby sounds was uh, grunting and stretching and, well, other little squeaky noises that he was making. Eh, not exactly cooing, but at least it wasn't crying. All in all, though, we did get to hold him for hours at a time, which was really an honor. Our visit was great, but all too brief. After just a couple of days, we had to head back. We left on our journey home well before dawn. There were very few cars on the highway at that early hour. With no moon, the wooded and hilly landscape was featureless and black. In the distance, you could see an occasional yard light denoting a farm. It would have been a tough job walking toward such a distant spot of light in the dark. That's one reason why I packed a couple of flashlights and an LED lantern, just in case. I continued on with my what-if scenario game. Even those distant farm lights would have been gone if there was a grid failure. In the dark like that, no one would have any idea where a farmhouse might be. People would probably just follow the highway. Even in the dim pre-dawn light, they could still see that. Even then, there was this one small town, maybe a half mile north of an exit. I could tell that it was there because of all of the lights. But if the grid was down, even though it was fairly close, that small town would have been pretty much invisible. Maybe with my paper maps I might have known where it was, assuming that I was keeping tabs on my location as I drove, uh, which I hadn't been. I had to stop my musing about walking in the dark because it started to snow. It was dramatic and theatrical, with big swirly flakes. It didn't seem to be accumulating on the road much, though. Oh, sure, near the edges it got kind of crusty after a while, and the dotted line between the lanes was all slushy. 
If you stayed in the right lane, in the well-traveled tire paths, the road was just wet, yeah, not all that bad. The cruise control shut off after a while, saying that the radar sensor was blocked, so cruise was unavailable. The error message said to check the owner's manual for how to clear off the sensor. Well, I tried doing that, but the manual was no help at all. It told me all kinds of things, but not where the radar sensor was. Oh well, we just have to get by without cruise. We just had to drive like cavemen, with our foot on the gas pedal at all times. Such a burden, huh? While driving like cavemen, we did see four different vehicles in the ditch. It didn't seem like that much snow. Maybe an inch or so, judging by the cornfields and the ditch grass, but apparently it was enough to cause some trouble. First we saw a red sedan that looked like it just drove a little clue too close to the edge of the shoulder and kind of settled down into the grass of a shallow ditch. It was too slippery to drive back out. The second vehicle was a minivan, also in the ditch, but facing the wrong way. Swirling tire marks across the lane and shoulder told of a spin-out. The van was upright and looked undamaged. The people inside were on their phones. No doubt they must have had a white-knuckle experience. The third vehicle was a big ram pickup, nose down in the ditch. Nearly perpendicular to the road, too. Maybe he spun out but corrected enough to make a gentle entry into the ditch. The sides of the ditch were pretty steep, even for a 4x4 to back out, what with this grass all slippery with snow. That driver was on his phone, too. The fourth vehicle was a semi. We only saw the top of the back end of his trailer as we passed. In the mirror, I could see that he, too, had gone off the road nearly perpendicular to the highway but he did so into a ditch deep enough to swallow a semi. It was going to be quite the chore to get his rig hauled out of there. When we got to the first rest stop around Rockland, Illinois, I could see why the radar sensor didn't work. The whole nose of the car was caked in an inch or more of gritty snow. It reminded me of those photos of buildings atop Mount Washington all encrusted with a layer of white ice. Only two holes remained where the heat of the headlights kept the snow off. I had to use my ice scraper to chip off the crust. After that, the radar and crews worked again. Closer to Chicago, the snow changed into rain and stayed rain for nearly the rest of the drive home. Driving back through the farm country of Ohio, I got to noticing the actual houses on the farms. They were different than the old farmhouses in New Hampshire. New England farmhouses tended to be simple colonials built in the late 1700s, or boxy federal-style houses from around 1800, usually on the bigger farms. Also a lot of plain gable-end farmhouses from the mid-1800s, usually with a bit of Greek Revival decoration to make them look a little less plain. Generally, the farmhouses of Ohio were kind of just old and plain, not much more than a hundred years old, though. After all, the Northwest Territories, from which Ohio would be the first state carved out, didn't get settled until the mid-1800s. Log cabins were the first settler homes. Those probably got replaced in the late 1800s and early 1900s, usually with some utilitarian frame construction houses. I did see a few farmhouses in what they called the prairie box style. They're almost like cubes, in all, equal in all dimensions, and with hip roofs. 
They were popular in the late 1800s and up to the 1920s. Most of the houses, however, were what they call I-House. It was a sort of three-quarters version of the classical colonial, but with only two or three windows on the wall instead of the colonial's five. Those simple homes sometimes had a bit of decoration to make them seem a little more fashionable. Some little touches from the craftsman style or a little Queen Anne gingerbread, etc. But most of them were just plain and utilitarian. It was the fact that all the farmhouses were old and kind of dumpy that struck me. You didn't see any fancy McMansions on farms. Now, I know farming is a low-margin business. Not much money left over to buy a fancy house. But where were the new utilitarian houses? The lack of fancy or new farmhouses, in contrast with the obviously growing and affluent suburbs full of fancy houses, got me to wondering about the future of farming in America. Is anyone establishing new farms? Or are there only old little farms getting absorbed into a few bigger farms? You could maybe work a small farm with a team of horses, but those larger farms are so very dependent on unrestricted access to diesel fuel. The notion of electric tractors and EV combines appeals to city people who don't know anything about farming, but real farmers know that electric farm equipment just isn't going to be able to do the work in the short time which it's got to be done. Diesel fuel is essential. Just about everything you find on a grocery store shelf, even the fresh produce, required many gallons of diesel fuel to get it there. So, back to my musing about the stability of our modern farming system and food-producing industries. We benefit now from cheap and abundant food, but it doesn't seem like it would take too much to upset that system. If the system does get derailed, even just a little bit, Would you be able to grow your own food to offset the market's failings? As soon as we got closer to home, we finished book two of Smith's The Trackers. Neither my wife or I were too impressed, especially for someone touted as a New York Times best-selling author. Though, now that I think of it, the blurb actually said NYT best-selling author. What if it was actually the North Youngstown Tribune and not the New York Times? Well, anyhow, the story amounted to more of a murder mystery. Several murders, actually, with the lawlessness of a grid-down world as the stage setting. Though I noticed that radios were kind of magical, working over very long distances. For my taste, the author was too fond of having his characters swear a lot. The narrator seemed a little too enthused to put a little extra volume and emphasis into each of those cursings. After a while, it started to sound kind of mindless. The author was also a bit too fond of gore. He liked describing sheets of blood and crunching bones and parts of bodies being blown off. Like the swearing, it started to get a bit repetitive. At one of the gushing blood passages, I looked over at my wife. She was rolling her eyes. We had a chuckle over that. Maybe Mr. Smith's swearing, abundant gunplay, and very descriptive gore are what the market really wants, if he made it to the New York Times bestseller list. I did a little digging after I got to the hotel. Apparently, it was an earlier one of Mr. Smith's books 
that made the bestseller list. And yes, it was the New York Times. I didn't do the swearing and graphic gore in my books, which probably explains why even the North Youngstown Tribune never contacted me. But I'm also not including any of that in my sixth book of the Siege series. Oh well, so much for my shot at fame. Despite a closed interstate in Pennsylvania, and what must be a perpetual traffic snarl around the Danbury, Connecticut area, we made it back to the rental car office with only 21 minutes later than planned. Not too bad for such a long trip. Well, that's what I did in my week off from writing and podcasting. Now that I'm back, I've resumed writing on Book 6 and plan to narrate Chapter 1 soon. I will have posted Chapter 11 for my Siege Club members and patrons to read. I'm also working on some other bonus materials. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again next week.